everybody, and welcome to another episode of Spoofed, all things contact centers and customer experience. I am your host, Jeff Kerchick, head of sales at Nextcaller, one of the cutting edge leaders in fraud and authentication technology for contact centers. Today, I'm joined by Dan Gingis, who is currently the CEO of the Experience Maker. He's a a keynote speaker, a customer experience coach, author, podcaster. If you work in customer experience, undoubtedly, you've probably heard his name or seen him around at, uh, at an event in the industry. So Dan, it's nice to have you. How are you doing today? Well, thank you, Jeff, for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm doing great given the circumstances, and uh, I am looking forward to the discussion. Awesome. Well, before we started the podcast, you and I were talking a little bit smack to one another because it came to light that uh, you are a Penn alum and I'm a Princeton alum, so we're supposed to be heated rivals. Um, And I guess I I have to – the first thing I need to ask, because it sounds like you were an avid Penn sports fan do you have a top pen sports moment or even better a princeton pen sports memory that you want to rub in my face well actually my favorite uh sports moment which i would say if you talk to almost anybody that went to Penn in the mid 90s they will tell you this was not only their favorite sports moment but their favorite moment of being a college student was um, the Penn basketball team uh, was slated to play Michigan on ESPN on national television. This was like the fab five, you know, Michigan uh, fantastic team. And here we are, this little Ivy league team and, uh, and Penn and, and it was at Michigan. So we were, I don't know, underdogs by however many points and uh, Penn ended up winning the game at the buzzer with a buzzer beater, um, and even though it was an away game, the entire campus just erupted, and uh, and and the there were the, the goalposts came down, and there was a parade, and you know it was absolutely amazing because this was a team that had no business going into Michigan and even playing on the same court, let alone beating them. Uh, so that was probably the one I remember the most. But as I was telling you before we got on, that. Um, I did get a chance to visit all of the other Ivy League schools. And, you know, for those listening who uh, who probably who, who don't relate to the, the rivalry, you know, think of uh, Michigan and Ohio State or Michigan and Michigan State or something like that. And, and that's basically what Penn Princeton is. And so I was essentially taught to hate Princeton. And when I went to visit the campus, I expected it to just be this, you know, hellhole because I hated it so much. And uh, of course, the Princeton campus is absolutely idyllic and gorgeous. And, uh, and so it was just a funny experience for me to walk in expecting darkness and uh, and then seeing your campus and thinking man this is probably a really nice place to go to school yeah no i'm glad i'm glad you enjoyed your time over there i didn't know about the the penn michigan game i'll have to look that up that's pretty pretty cool i know i know that there was a big rivalry between penn and princeton both basketball teams were really good and it always came down to the last regular season game between the two um because it was uh the regular season team that makes it, you know, the regular season champion that would make it into the tournament. And it feels like it's kind of changed a lot over the years. And, uh, you know, Cornell had a run, Yale 
had a team. Um, Harvard has had some great teams. So it's been fun to see some of the parody, but um, I, you know, some people really do miss those, uh, the, the rivalry. And it's been pretty lopsided one way or the other, it feels like uh, for a while. And uh, not like it used to be where it was, uh, you know, super competitive every single year. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say I didn't expect to have sports be such a big part of my college career. That's uh, if I had wanted that, I probably would have gone to a different college to be honest. Um, but it turned out to be just because at that time in the mid nineties, it was hyper competitive. Uh, Penn happened to have really good teams in um, both football and basketball. We sent a number of players to the NBA. Um, ironically, I'm a Chicago Cubs fan because I was born and raised in Chicago and and Mark DeRosa, who was the starting quarterback at Penn when I was there, ended up uh, playing for the Chicago Cubs because he had a very successful baseball career. Um, at Doug Glanville, who was a baseball player at Penn, was also on the Cubs. So uh, it just happened to be a time period where it was really, really exciting. And uh, at least for those that are there, uh, I hope it comes back. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I could talk about sports all day, especially you know Princeton Penn, but um, the people that are listening, they want they want to know more about you, and they have questions about customer experience and the work that you do. So I guess why don't you just you know we know a little bit about your background, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about how you got to where you are today? Sure. Well, I spent uh, more than twenty years in corporate America as a marketer. Um, I came out of Penn and actually uh, went to a collectibles company, a high-end collectibles company that sold plates, dolls, figurines, sports collectibles, uh, classic car replicas, that sort of thing. And I was assigned a bunch of product lines literally my first week out of college. And they said, okay, you own these, uh, put together a marketing plan and go out and sell them. And that's where I learned direct marketing um, direct mail, magazines, newspapers, Sunday coupons, FSIs, etc. And it really taught me uh, all of the marketing skills that I ended up using for really the rest of my career, although I never took a marketing class at Penn. Um, so I spent four years uh, at the Danbury Mint and then came back to Chicago to get my MBA. And that's when I took my first marketing class and, and realized that all the things I had been doing had names and frameworks uh, attached to them. And uh, so it was kind of funny to go back to school and learn what I had already been doing, but I just didn't, you know, hadn't had the formal learning. And then I spent a bunch of time in large company corporate America. I spent almost 10 years at Discover Card. I spent a couple of years at Humana and then at McDonald's. And growing roles that really started in pure marketing and evolved into loyalty and customer experience, and in particular, digital experience. So, um, and that's really where I figured out that that was my passion. Um, I had a boss at Discover who told me that he had observed about me that every meeting I was in, I was wearing the customer hat and I was always speaking on behalf of the customer. And I'm not sure that I realized I was doing that. But when he said that to me, a light bulb went off in my head that it was something that I was excited about and interested in. And I think the real turning point for me was when I got assigned to lead my first social media team at Discover, you can go onto Twitter and uh, look up my profile at D Gingus. And the day that I joined Twitter, 
was the day that I started in that role. I was like, well, if I'm leading a social media team, I better figure out what this Twitter thing's all about. And, uh, and that really changed the game for me because I realized that social media was the first and only marketing channel where people could talk back to you. And I thought that was fascinating and not so much as a marketing channel, but as an engagement channel, as a way to, to get closer to customers. And, um, and so I really got into the service element of social media. I wrote a book called Winning at Social Customer Care, where I had interviewed you know, tons of companies that were doing this, the service thing really well. And over time, that's evolved into me being interested in the broader customer experience, And so now, as you mentioned, I run my own company, uh, which I've done for about a year and a half now. My joke is I like to work for the Dan a lot better than I liked working for the man. And uh, I'm a speaker and experience coach and uh, love what I do and uh, advise anybody listening that if you don't love what you do at work, it's time to find something else to do because it is really refreshing when you love what you do. That's awesome. I, and I really like working for, for the Dan uh, as opposed to working for the man. Um, so, yeah, I love the uh, – you know, I love that I, one of my best friends actually runs social media for a major sports media company. And so I'm, I'm interested in learning about this world a little bit. Um, I hear a little bit from him and what he does every day, but it's always fascinating to me, um, you know, how how many impressions you can make and, and – um, you know, it's it's just a it's just a it's a crazy world, and and one of the things that I've we've seen is is some some research that indicates that something like seven uh, positive interactions can have the same impact as one negative interaction. That seems kind of unfair, uh, but that's just the reality. And why is that, Dan? Like, why is it that brands can't get more runway out of those positive interactions? You think? Well, it's a great question because that's actually what I highlight my talks and my coaching on is I teach brands how to create those positive experiences. And I always use an intentional word, which is remarkable, remarkable experiences. And obviously remarkable, the definition is worthy of remark, worthy of discussion. And so if you can create an experience that people want to talk about, you create essentially volunteer marketers, word of mouth marketers. And I think what you're seeing in that data about the about seven positive experiences to one negative is really about something slightly different. The research that I've shown, seen says that people are actually more willing to share positive experiences than negative ones. The problem is, is that as consumers, we don't have very many positive experiences. And whenever I'm on stage, I'll do a survey of an audience and say, you know, how many people remember the last time that a brand absolutely amazed them and they couldn't wait to tell their friends about it? And I get a sprinkling of hands. And then I say, okay, now who remembers the last time you were disappointed by a brand? And pretty much every hand goes up. And so what I think is happening is we know that people share at both edges. They, they share positive and they share negative. The problem, though, is that 80% or more of the experiences that we have are what my millennial friends would call meh. They're just average. They're not remarkable. Nobody ever has said, hey, let me tell you about the perfectly average dinner I had last night at this restaurant, right? And so they're stories that nobody wants to tell. But if you had to say, are they positive or negative, they're positive because they're not bad. It's like the absence of bad. 
But I teach people, I teach companies how to create positive experiences that are actually remarkable, that you want to talk about. So I went to uh, my my son turned uh, 14 uh, back in February, and we took him out to a really nice uh, steakhouse. And we told them ahead of time that it was our son's birthday. Now, at most restaurants, what probably happens is at the end of the meal, the waiter comes out with a quote unquote surprise slice of cake with a candle, right? And it's not really a surprise because you sort of knew it was going to happen. And that's what everybody does. We walked into this restaurant and the first thing they did was hand my son a birthday card which I was stunned at, right? All I had done is, I mean, I think I had um, uh, reserved the table on open table or something like that and just mentioned it was his birthday. And they had written out a birthday card and had people in the restaurant sign it. I was like, that is amazing. And then he told us that they had something special for him at the end of the meal. And I knew throughout the meal that it wasn't going to be a slice of cake, right? Because that wouldn't be very special. And sure enough, out came this box of homemade uh, chocolates. And they had the, the box said happy birthday and it was presented on a plate that they had like used, um, you know, some sort of a, a mold or something to, to write in script happy birthday. And, and, and instead of a candle, there was a sparkler and the whole presentation was just like, wow. And so of course you take a picture of it and you share it on Facebook and you tell your friends. And of course, being a customer experience guy, I take a picture of it and talk about it in a blog or on stage or something like that. And that's the difference between a real positive experience and one that is positive, but is just not worth sharing. And so hopefully that's the distinction, but I would bet that your seven positive experiences, so many of them are just the slice of cake which is positive, but it's not worth sharing. Yeah, that's I, I never really thought about it that way. And I think that's really interesting is that you have on 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 two end you basically have two ends of the spectrum. And it can either be really disappointing or really good. But most of the time it's just kind of getting the job done. And um, you know, I'm thinking of the way that you described that, it made me think about an actual recent interaction I had with StubHub. I've actually had to call them a couple of times because as you can imagine with COVID, a lot of events are postponed and, you know, canceled and things like that. And I've been surprised both times I called StubHub. I was, you know, let's face it, I was calling about an issue and it was a little frustrating. And even though I didn't really get what I wanted in either call, I didn't get the outcome that I wanted. The reps were outstanding, like incredibly friendly, um, going out of their way to ask me about what I was, how I was doing and, you know, what the concert was that I was seeing. And honestly, just the effort that they made, even though I didn't get, you know, exactly what I wanted with their policy, it made me feel valued. Um, and I think that's, uh, I, I think that's an interesting and good point that you raise. And I, and I guess a segue that I have is that, you know, sometimes especially on Twitter. And this happens, I, I think, a lot with the airlines and things like that. But you don't always have full context or transparency into what's going on with a customer. So for example, I might be tweeting furiously at American Airlines, which, you know, I'll be honest, sometimes I actually do um, about something that happened. But reality might be that it's kind of my fault. Um, and, you know, I guess if you're the airline or the brand, like how do you navigate being under the microscope 
without setting bad or unscalable precedents. And I think one of the best examples of this, if we're on the topic of airlines too, is, um, I mean, this happened a few years ago, but there was that issue with United Airlines and the passenger who had to be dragged off the plane. And the more information that came out about that, um, and I'm not, I'm not uh, exonerating United Airlines here, but the more information that came out about that story, the better the brand actually ended up looking. It was kind of like the visceral reaction of seeing a video of someone being dragged off an airplane um, that was, you know, had people up in arms. So if you, you know, it's, it's, I feel like it's a really delicate balancing act for these brands when there's these videos or tweets that lack like the entire context. And um, anyway, how do you navigate that? Well, it's a great question, and it's definitely true. Uh, and one of the things that happened with social early on is that people used it as a service channel of last resort. They had called and they didn't get the satisfactory answer, or they had emailed and didn't get any answer, or the chat was down on the website. And so now they're really angry because they've been trying to get resolution. They haven't. And so they go to social and they say, oh, I'm going to show them. And that definitely highlighted a lot of negative experiences. I think with the guy being dragged off the plane, it also highlights what I've been saying on uh, in my keynotes for a while, which is that there's no longer such a thing as an offline experience. And every company needs to internalize that. Anything that you think is not on social media, is not online, can in a heartbeat be photographed or videoed and put online. And so as we build experiences, especially IRL in real life experiences, we have to continue to ask ourselves, would we like somebody to take a picture of this and post it online? And if the answer is no, you got to fix the experience. And 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 conversely, I teach people how to create, you know, in-person experiences that where, where the answer is specifically yes. We hope we we hope people take a picture and share it online. That steak restaurant knew that people were going to take pictures of it and share it online, right? And so it's very intentional. Uh, I think on social, and I've worked again for some very big brands um, and had such a fascinating array of experiences of of what people uh, bring to social media and some that would just absolutely stun you. I think, um, you know, at, at, at McDonald's, it was always the battle of which of the pictures that were posted were photoshopped and uh, i i will never forget one one picture that somebody shared once you know although they were just absolutely livid at mcdonald's because they had found an entire rat in their milkshake and you look at this picture and it's very well done i mean the rat's fur is all matted with chocolate shake and you know etc the only problem is is that the way that the shakes are made that's literally impossible and and so you know but this person is certainly portraying it as being a big problem that they had. And so how do you react to that? And I think that what I always advise brands is, number one, treat every complaint, at least at the beginning, as a legitimate complaint. Because you're right, you don't have all the context and you don't know uh, everything that's going on. And so if you show interest in solving the problem for the customer, that often will it'll certainly make the trolls go away because you know trolls are just looking for attention they're not actually looking for resolution so as soon as they get a brand saying okay how do i help you resolve this they're like whoops i'm gonna go pick on another brand 
but it also uh, protects you in case the problem really is your fault. And one of the things that I always say about complaints is that companies should not be afraid of complaints. Complaints are actually feedback and feedback is a gift. And so they're feedback that says, hey, your experience isn't what I expected it to be. And most importantly, complaints are from people who care because if they didn't care, they would just move on to your competitor. But they do care, and that's why they're trying to get resolution. They're basically trying to say, hey, I'm willing to give you a second chance, but you got to fix this for me. And so your, you know, your situation with StubHub, you were probably connected to them because that's where you bought your tickets. But the question is, the next time, are you going to buy your tickets from StubHub or are you going to go somewhere else? And that's why it's really important that StubHub leaves you feeling okay, even if they couldn't exactly solve your problem, because now you're more likely to go back to them going forward. So you should never ignore complaints. You should respond to everyone and treat them like they're legitimate complaints. But obviously, sometimes when you dig into it, you start to figure out what the real situation is. And one other thing I would add is that to consumers, I always tell I always say to people, the best way to get the response that you want from a brand is to go to direct messaging. And so I start, I'm the customer experience guy, and I anytime I want to talk to a brand, the first place I go is Twitter DM. And the reason is because it's very convenient for me. I can explain my problem. If I've talked to this brand before, they've already got all my information you know, in past chats. And I don't have to wait for anyone. I don't have to wait on hold. I don't have to wait for an agent to type out a live chat response, I could just say my problem and leave. But importantly, the brand also appreciates it because I'm not making it public. I'm not trying to embarrass them. And in that way, I'm basically saying to them, hey, I really do. I'm for real. My complaint is real and I want help. And I have found that I get the best responses and the most help by going to, to private messaging. Um, because again, I think it's a nod to the brand saying, hey, look, one of us screwed up. I'm not trying to embarrass you, but I would like this to get fixed. And I think a lot of people, because they are angry or emotional, end up coming off as embarrassing the brand. And that does, you know, that makes it harder for the company and them less likely to really want to help you. Well, on one hand, I'm happy that you have explained that what I've been doing when I have an issue with American Airlines is the right way to go. But on the other hand, I'm a little upset that you just told the world my big secret. Um, <laughs> I hope I, I hope that I'm still going to get the same level of service from them next time I'm having an issue. But um, I find uh, that they are, <laughs> I'm, they're very good on, um, on either public posts or direct messaging. But I, I always go to direct messaging now. And, yeah. you know, I see people post, you know, uh, sitting on the tarmac for two hours. What are you guys doing? And again, the problem with that is it's meant to just express frustration and embarrass the airline. It's not, they know there's nothing that the airline can do. And so right. there's really no resolution that's being asked for. Whereas, hey, I bought a ticket and I need to exchange it and I don't want to pay the $150 change fee and whatever. I find the best way to do that is privately. Yep. No, I agree. And they, they, they are, they are pretty good. And to your point, yeah, I mean, the person who's sitting behind the Twitter, they can't, you know, leave their desk and go fly the plane. So I am with you on that. Sometimes people are kind of going out of their way with an intention to be embarrassing or embarrassing somebody else rather than seeking resolution. And, uh, that's an interesting point that from the brand's perspective, the appreciation that the brand has 
for the customer and how they handle the interaction. Um, I guess just like in the in the vein of, you know, we're talking about private conversation, but uh, but you know, a lot of times, uh, as far as and, and how a brand reaches out to you, they they might want to use information that you're putting out into the ether publicly, and you know, brands are obviously trying to be more proactive and predictive. I mean, I'm sure when we're done with this podcast, I'm going to have, you know, Instagram ads for StubHub and American Airlines because my phone is listening to me and, you know, knows what I've been talking about. But, you know, how do brands avoid going too far? Like on one hand, you want to be human and you want to meet the customer where they are and make life easy for them. But on the other hand, you don't want to be creepy. So how do you, how do you, balance the two and have you seen instances of brands being a little over eager in this regard and having it backfire well i think your example is the over eager example and i had the same thing happen the other day i was talking to my daughter about something um, right in front of my computer and 30 minutes later i saw an ad for that and i'm like how in the world did that just happen and that is creepy but i believe that anything that customers put out into the ether proactively is fair game. And so there's a great story about a, um, that I like to tell about a, a woman who uh, mentioned that it was her birthday and she was sick and at home and Puff's Tissues saw this and they jumped in and they said, oh, we're so sorry that you're not feeling well on your birthday. We'd love to send you a gift. And they ended up sending her a, you know, a care package in the mail filled with Puff's tissues. And, you know, shockingly, she's now a brand loyalist. And so I think that's totally fair game. If you go back to the birthday example, think about how many companies know your birthday. And then think about how many times, especially if you travel a lot, how many times you have to pull out your license and show people your license that has your birthday on it, right? So and yet, think about how many companies use that information. Now, as it turns out, I'm sort of a bad example of this because, believe it or not, my birthday is actually on Christmas Day. And so I do get a lot of people when they look at my license say, oh, you're a Christmas baby. But I have friends that have told me that they have flown on their birthday and you know, six people check your license at the airport and not one of them noticed it was their birthday. And that's really easy stuff, right? I mean, that that shouldn't be very difficult. Or if we have set up an account with a company and we've had to put in our birthday, how hard is it for them to wish us a happy birthday, right? And, and to me, that's not creepy at all because I gave you the information. So I would advise brands to start with the information you have, be willing to find information that is already public. But then the line to me is where I haven't voluntarily shared that information with you. So a private conversation with my daughter or your phone listening in, if that stuff really happens, that to me is over the line and is really creepy. Um, but again, I think there's plenty of opportunity where brands don't have to go that far because they haven't even gone far enough with the information that they do have. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I, I agree with you about that what you put out there is fair game. And I've always kind of, um, I mean, this is probably a little bit extreme, but I've kind of, uh, I've kind of used like Walden pond as my little example. Like if you don't want to, you know, if you don't want to, you know, if you have a smartphone, you have all these apps on your phone, you're enjoying the luxury of obviously having everything at your fingertips. But one of the trade-offs is that you are putting 
you're putting information out there, you are sharing data back with the party that's providing you with the service. Um, so I agree with you that, you know, there's, there's almost like a social contract. You can have a phone and you can play with it, or you can, you know, go live in Walden pond and, uh, you know, without a device and be off the grid, but, um, you don't really get to choose. And I, I agree that the, you know, some of the, uh, examples of the overreach where it feels like you're not actually voluntarily putting information out there and yet a brand still has it feels a little bit, um, invasive. So very interesting, but, um, you know, one of the things that a lot of people are dealing with right now is obviously COVID and, we did a study here at Nextcaller recently that basically found that people had more empathy for brands when COVID first started. Um, and the majority also reported it would take two or three bad interactions with a brand before they would switch. Um, it doesn't seem like their perceived patience lines up with reality. Um, how common is that? Like, How can brands avoid getting comfortable with this new normal once patience runs out. And I guess just to add on to that, like how do you think COVID at large has changed CX and how do you think it will, like how do you predict it will change it moving forward? So great questions. Uh, I would say that the patience part is because we're in a unique time in human history where almost everyone on the planet is going through the same experience at the same time. And I think that lends itself to more empathy because we know that the person that we're talking to in the call center had to come into work today and maybe didn't want to or uh, has a family at home and is worried about getting sick just like we are. And so I think as humans, since we're capable of empathy, I think that kind of kicks in. And, um, and also I think we all – saw at our own companies or with companies that we do business with that almost every crisis plan or business continuity plan that was in place got tossed out in the first two weeks of this COVID pandemic. And one of my predictions is that just as a couple of years ago in the regulated industries of banking and um, insurance that, you know, being in the compliance division suddenly was like the best job in the company and they were hiring like crazy. And, and one company uh, at some point reported that they had more compliance employees than marketing employees. I think that's now going to happen with business continuity people is there's no longer going to be, you know, business continuity is no longer going to be a checkbox. It's going to be something that we know we have to do for if and when that something like this happens again versus in the past where it was always like, oh, well, this is what we'll do in a pandemic. Uh, nah, pandemic will never happen. And, and literally, I mean, I, that's probably what most business continuity plans went through. Um, so I think that the empathy is definitely there. That all said, I believe that this whole experience has put more of a focus on CX and made it more important than ever before because at its essence, customer experience is about human to human interaction. And we all crave human interaction, which is why I'm also a believer that while bots can be very useful in some cases, they're not going to take over the world because consumers aren't going to let them. Consumers don't want to deal only with bots. They want to deal with humans. And I think in this particular moment where we're all um, just cl 
clamoring for human interaction because we've been stuck at home and we've been stuck with the same people for a long time and and we're only seeing people on screens. Uh, I think that it presents a huge opportunity for brands to show people the human side of their company and to really show them that they care about them as a person, as you mentioned, not just as an account number. And um, one of the stories I was sh- I've been sharing more recently is, you know, when COVID first uh, broke out, we all got, you know, emails upon emails from every company that ever had our address telling us about what, how they were responding to the pandemic. And it reminded me a lot about the emails we got a couple of years ago uh, when all the privacy policies changed. And every one of these emails was the same. You know, we're, we're enhanced cleaning procedures and following CDC guidelines. And for more information, you know, go visit the CDC website. And then I got an email from Charles Schwab and it had none of that in there. And instead it said, we know that you must be really nervous right now investing in a volatile stock market. And so we've developed these tools that you can use to navigate through volatile times. And also we have people standing by at, you know, investment advisors standing by who can talk you through it if you need some help. And I was like, that is amazing. That, that makes me so happy to be a Charles Schwab customer because they knew exactly what I needed at this moment. I needed the human intervention. I needed somebody to tell me, we get you. We understand that you're nervous right now because it's a volatile market and that we have a solution for you. And so to me, that really stood out compared to all the other emails that I got just telling me that, that they were cleaning better. And so, you know, in short, I think there's never been a more important time to focus on customer experience because when we come out of this, we need our customers to come back and we need them to stay. That's so true. And, 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 and you're right that, I mean, it got to a point for me personally, where if I saw COVID in the subject line from a vendor at work, or if it was just a brand that I do you know, business with that I was just deleting the emails, you know, it's just because everything I was getting was so generic. Um, you know, if it was an airline telling me about their new cleaning policies, but you're right, there were, there were some where people were reaching out with like, you know, more, uh, uh, more information of value, I guess, or just something, you know, that like your experience with Schwab, which was specific to an actual fear and concern that you had. Um, so I really like that example. And I guess, um, I'm going to go off track a little bit because uh, I'm and and I don't know you might be uncomfortable even answering half this question, but I'm wondering if you're willing to call out um, a couple of brands that are doing well, um, that are you know doing a particularly good job with their service and and why you think that is, and if you're able to, I'd love to learn about maybe a couple brands that could be doing better. And if you're uncomfortable naming them specifically, maybe you can just give like a vertical and talk about. Um, just high level observations that, you know, areas where you could see improvement? Yeah. um, Good question. And I, one of the things that I have always done with sort of with my own personal brand is I always focus on the companies that are doing it well. And the reason is because the companies that screw up, they hear about it enough, (laughs) enough people pile on that I don't need to be another person who piles on, Um, but I'm happy to talk about a vertical, but yeah, I think there's some companies that are doing um, a great job. Uh, one of my favorite companies right now is called Imperfect Produce. 
It's a late stage startup out of San Francisco, and they are taking uh, fruits and vegetables from farms that are cosmetically off. They're either too big or too small, or maybe they have a dent or you know, the skin doesn't look quite as good and they box it up into a subscription service. Uh, and the produce is a lot less expensive than going to the store and it's perfectly edible and delicious. And they've actually expanded recently into um, other groceries. A lot of companies that have excess inventory, especially companies now that, you know, sell to restaurants and others that are just sitting on inventory of meat and seafood and stuff, and they don't know what to do with it. Uh, Imperfect will buy it and, and offer it as part of their subscription program. And they're also very active on social and they're very responsive. They are uh, quick witted and, and will use, um, you know, vegetable puns or, or, you know, something like that to just sort of, which obviously fits in with their brand really well. Um, and, uh, and they're very, also very quick to use heart emojis and just sort of tell you how much that they love you as a customer. And I, and I, I think that goes a long way with people. Um, so I enjoy that. Um, obviously I think, uh, you know, Wendy's continues to crush it on social and, um, and really has made it part of their brand, which I thought was really bold because if you think about Wendy's and certainly as a guy growing up in the eighties, I mean, Wendy's is that brand that was known for, you know, the founder, Dave, and, you know, the, the logo is of a little girl in pigtails. I mean, it's, it, it was very much known as sort of a wholesome family brand. And then it pivoted into this like sarcastic, hilarious aim at the millennials um, brand and pulled it off perfectly. Um, and I think they've done such a great job of, I mean, that the story a couple of years ago about the guy that wanted the free nuggets and, you know, turned into a national phenomenon, that's just brilliant. And there's so many companies that would have ignored that, not engaged at all or, or said no. And, uh, and I love that Wendy's was willing to take a risk knowing that, yeah, they might have to pay out on those nuggets for life. Um, but the PR value of it alone was, was well worth it. So, I think those are some of the ones that are are doing well. Um, on the flip side, I do think that there are a lot of large companies that, to me, have surprisingly inferior social media presences. And I think part of it, having worked at McDonald's, I know some of the mindset. I mean, the mindset at McDonald's was, we're too big. We get too many comments. We can't possibly respond to all of them. And I kind of went back and said, well, yeah, you can. It, you just have to hire more people to do it. So you have to want to do it. There's no company that can't respond. It's it's a decision not to respond. And one of the things that I really tried uh, to do at my time at McDonald's was change the culture there to being about engaging with customers because it is a brand people love to love and a brand people love to hate. And, uh, and I felt like McDonald's was and still is uh, getting trounced by Wendy's in social media. Uh, likewise, I think there's some other, let's call them very large technology companies that everybody knows and, and, and plural that if you tweet at, you're not going to get a response from. And yet it, these are products and services you use every day of your life. And sometimes you have issues with them. 
but good luck trying to get a response on social. And, and that surprises me. Uh, and I, I do think that at some point that may catch up with these companies, especially because, you know, there's still a lot of industries that have not yet been disrupted. And if you're in an industry that hasn't been disrupted and you're not looking over your shoulder, you're going to get hit at some point. Somebody's going to figure out a way to do things better. One of the reasons I left the healthcare industry was that's an industry that hasn't been disrupted nearly enough. You've got a ton of old players that have been there forever that all do things the same way, even though as consumers, we know that dealing with our health insurer is one of the worst experiences that we have. And the only problem is the only reason why why we don't switch is because they're all equally bad. And so to me, that's an industry that is ripe for disruption, that if somebody can figure out how to do health insurance in a different way, where you communicate to customers in language they understand, where you make the whole process easy and automatic and digital, I think a lot of the big players in uh, in health insurance are going to be caught you know, with their pants down, not, not knowing what to do. Um, and so if you're in an industry that hasn't been disrupted, rest assured in the next five years, you're going to be disrupted. And, uh, and so one of the ways to avoid that is to start thinking like a customer and to start engaging with your customers and let them tell you what's good and what is not as good about your experience. One other thing I just want to add there is, as a manager, as a people manager uh, for all these years in corporate America, one of the things that I did uh, for every review cycle, mid-year, end-of-year review cycle, is I did this for the people that worked for me and I asked my managers that worked for me to do it for the people that worked for them, is every employee would get three, um, uh, three strengths and three opportunities, excuse me. And the reason for that is that it forces the manager to think hard about what is the person doing well and what could the person do better. And then it also levels the playing field because everybody gets three. So it, you don't have the situation where Sally goes and talks to Jenny and says, well, man, I got three opportunities you know, and you only got two, so you must be doing a better job. No, everybody gets three. And I think similarly for brands, as I said before, be open to those opportunities. Be open to the feedback that says, hey, you're not doing as good of a job as you think you are, but here's the way to fix it. And customers are you know, more than willing to share their opinions and share their feedback about what they don't like and also about how to fix it. Awesome. Yeah, no, those are all great, fantastic takeaways. And I, I agree about Wendy's. Um, it was definitely a change in the, in the tenor of the, you know, the way that you looked at that brand, um, you know, for them to become a little bit sassy, it was kind of, uh, almost like they're like a millennial version of itself, which I, I just, I just found the full thing, very cute, cheeky. Um, my last question, Dan, for you is I, I kind of want to end on a positive note and, um, would love to hear any funny stories or antidotes you could share about CX, whether it's something experience that you've had or an experience that you've witnessed, um, any funny stories or anecdotes that you have. Sure. Uh, one of my favorite funny stories comes out of the UK and it's a fashion brand called ASOS and ASOS 
printed up a whole bunch of plastic bags that they put their products into. And they noticed that there was a typo on the bag. So it says ASOS discover fashion online. But unfortunately, there was a typo for the word online and it is and it says O N I L N E. So you know two two uh, letters were reversed. Now, I believe that most companies would have not even noticed the error and would have just sent out the bags with the spelling error. And the ones that did notice it would have thrown the bags out. They would have said, no, we can't, you know, this is embarrassing. We got to reprint them. ASOS instead took a picture of one of the bags, posted it on Twitter and said, okay, so we may have printed 17,000 bags with a typo. We're calling it a limited edition. And that tweet has over 50,000 likes and over 9,000 retweets for a little company that doesn't usually get that kind of engagement. And what I love about that is the company made a mistake. They were willing to poke fun at itself and be self-deprecating. And people loved them because of it. And they laughed along with the company instead of laughing at the company. And you think about that from a different perspective. Let's say they didn't notice the mistake and they sent it out to customers. Well, now you'll have a customer taking a picture of it and making fun of the company and putting the company on the defense. But instead, ASOS went on the offense and was willing to be self-deprecating and made a whole lot of fans because of it. And not to mention, saved the bags from ending up in the landfill, which I appreciated as well. So that's a great example of a, just a CX example of of. Uh, making lemonade out of lemons. That's a really awesome story, and I'm familiar with that brand. I, uh, I I shop with them every Christmas season, so it's good to know about that story now. Um, Dan, this was absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate your time today on the episode. I'll chat with you after, but um, thank you for for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I really appreciate it, and. Uh, uh, if anybody listening uh, ever wants to chat customer experience, uh, I love doing that. Uh, so feel free to reach out. Thanks, Dan. I hope everybody has a great week. Stay safe out there.